that's one of the things about traveling this far is jet lag. So I think I heard a lot of you guys coming home last night around 2 or 3 in the morning. That's when I woke up for, to start my day. Um, but I'm okay. Um, it's also weird. You can like be in your pajamas in your little studio in your closet in your apartment talking to Steven Skeep and like a million people are listening to you. Um, it's different to actually have to look at you, so I'm sorry if I seem nervous. Um, uh, but I'll start. Um, hi, my name is Kelly, and I work for the man. This is where you're supposed to be sympathetic and say hi, Kelly. Um, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, right, I'm doing exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to be talking about here at Third Coast. You know, Ira last night was talking about, you know, sort of destroying the newsiness of news. Um, pretty sure he was talking about NPR. Um, <laughs> I work for NPR. <laughs> um, in fact, when they first asked me to present, I think I was like, well, what, you know, what, why? I mean, what, 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 uh, what can I talk about? Um, and I, you know, what's great about doing something like this when you're really busy and doing a lot of news all the time, like I am, is that it gives you a minute to stop and think like, oh, well, okay, well, yeah, why? What, what should I talk about? And um, it kind of dawned on me um, that in this kind of quiet way, I've sort of been, trying to lead a, um, an insurrection inside NPR. <clears throat> um, I guess it's not quiet anymore because I just said it. Um, so <laughs> if I get fired on Monday, it's all your fault. Um, but um, in that, I'm just in, within the news division. I mean, there's obviously a lot of amazing, creative, wonderful voices at NPR, and there's a million reasons why we should all listen to NPR. Um, but within the news division, you know, things sound pretty newsy. And so what I've been trying to do over the last couple of years is just bring a kind of... Um, I guess you could say indie sensibility to the news of the day. Um, for the past year or so, I've been covering, pretty much the past two years, one of the most exhilarating, fascinating, and at times horrifying stories of our generation. Um, and that's the Arab uprisings that have started in Tunisia and swept all across the region. Um, but because these places are so far away, um, from the people who are listening to the stories, and because they, you know, they have names that people can't pronounce, ideas that people can't understand. I've I've tried to sometimes failed um, to tell stories in the same way that you might tell a story about a struggling town in the southern United States or a family whose house has been foreclosed on. Um, I've tried to hone in on the human stuff and the narrative stuff, and um, like I said, bring this kind of sort of sometimes indie sensibility to NPR. Basically to try to sound as little like NPR as possible inside NPR. Sometimes it works, um, sometimes it doesn't. Um, the thing is I do this in pretty harrowing circumstances. Um, I won't go into details, but um, uh, but that's not, I don't think you guys are here to really hear about that. I don't think anybody you guys are gonna be like tear gassed anytime soon or shot at anytime soon. Um, but what you will be confronted with day in and day out when you're making radio is is the question of how, how do I make this story um, when everything doesn't go as planned? Um, I think when you're here at Third Coast and you're talking about how to make radio, you, you know, you're going to leave here with like a checklist of all the things. You know, I need good characters, you know, good access scenes, all these things. And I'm here to tell you that a lot of the time it just doesn't work out that way, um, especially in what I do. And sometimes when it doesn't work out, Sometimes when you don't have all the things on the checklist, it's actually kind of amazing and kind of surprising. Um, you know, imagine trying to go to Wisconsin and cover the protests at the Capitol building and 
the borders are closed and you know somebody's trying to arrest you or you don't have a you can't bring a kit because all of a sudden Wisconsin has made it illegal to bring microphones into the country. I mean these are the kinds of things that I deal with all the time. So it's like what do you do? Well you figure it out. You solve the problem and you try to make radio. So all I'm going to do is just sort of play some examples of some of these times when I've not had all the things on the checklist. Um, talk about it a little bit and uh, then hopefully hear from you and hear what you think about it and take questions and stuff. Does that sound good? Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. So, <clears throat> um, like I said, I cover the Arab uprisings. Like I, I like to tell people that um, I covered all the ones that <laughs> failed. Um, while my colleagues were celebrating in Tahrir Square in Cairo with all the protesters once the Mubarak fell or rolling across the desert in Libya with like the Mad Max rebels as they went to take down Baba Azizia in Tripoli and eventually see the fall of Gaddafi. Um, I was basically hunkered down in hotels and drinking bad coffee, um, talking to activists and protesters on Skype and secure lines in places like Bahrain. Yemen and Syria, those are the three main countries that I cover. Um, all of them had their own uprisings. Um, two of them have definitely not worked out. Um, Yemen sort of worked out, we'll, we'll hear some more about that later, but um, that, the bad guy did step down in Yemen, so that was a good thing. Um, but so what does it mean? I mean, on just on a day-to-day -day basis as a reporter, it meant that I was mostly in countries that didn't want me there, um, made it illegal for me to be there, uh, um, places where, I, like I said, I couldn't even bring a microphone, and places where the people who were leading these protests had, had it a lot worse than I did. So I was trying to report on them. So um, one of the first countries I covered was Bahrain. Um, it was actually one of the first countries that rose up. You had 200,000 to 250,000 people all protesting in this one little <clears throat> roundabout. They called it the Pearl Roundabout because there was this monument in the roundabout that um, Bahrain is an old pearl diving place in the Persian Gulf. It was this monument that looked like fingers elongated into the sky holding up a pearl. That was sort of their idea and it was the symbol of freedom for the protesters. And for a month you had people just basic, totally occupying this roundabout and it was after, you know, after Egypt, after Tunisia, there was a lot of euphoria, a lot of optimism. And then uh, about a month into it, the government just decided, no, we're not going to have this. They basically called in troops from Saudi Arabia and who flew Apache warplanes over the scene. Um, and they went into the Pearl Roundabout, torched it, shot people, and cleared it. And then a few days later, actually demolished the roundabout. Um, the protest movement was totally demoralized. And then they imposed martial law, which basically meant that Anyone who'd even been seen at a protest was now subject to arrest, detention, and possibly torture, and some people would actually die in torture. I'm sorry if you expected an uplifting session here. I've got lots of sad stories to tell. Um, when I was putting these pieces into iTunes, it was listing them as blues, as the <laughs> genre. <laughs> I was like... Um, so uh, anyhow, so I got to Bahrain in the middle of this period. It was, it's called the crackdown. I mean, it's just, it was uh, unbelievable how completely, how, what a turnaround the place had undergone. Um, 
reporters could not get into the country. There was no way we could get visas. I, through a friend, had heard about a website that was granting e-visas to Bahrain somehow through some random Bahraini embassy. They had forgotten to close down this e-visa service, so I was like, okay, sweet. And so you could get a business visa into Bahrain, and so I, you know, I remember showing up. I couldn't bring a microphone, I couldn't bring anything. I could not appear to be a journalist, so all I had was an iPhone. I did everything on an iPhone. And um, they're like, uh, okay, you're, busy, you're, you're here for business? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, who do you work for? Um, JP Morgan. Um, I was like, I've never said the words J.P. Morgan in my life, so I really have no idea why that happened. But anyway, so I get there, and I'm trying to figure out what's this crackdown like, Who, how's it being, and people were terrified. I couldn't, literally, I was in my hotel room, I was having to call people on Skype, I couldn't call them on their phones, you know, so here's like, uh, you know, if you're talking about the checklist, I had nothing, you know, I had no sources, I had no microphone, I had, I was like, but I had to make some radio, you know, so I was like, what am I going to do? So I, um... I, I talked to some folks, some political opposition people who are still willing to talk, and I heard, started hearing stories that a lot of the crackdown was um, that they were punishing women, which is really a bad thing to do in an Arab country. Hold on. Mm. Um, <clears throat> as you'll hear. So somebody told me, we know this woman, and she'll talk to you. Go to this office at this time. Make sure you're not followed. Take two different cars, you know, this kind of stuff. Like, it was total cloak and dagger stuff, right? So I get there, and I'm like, I finally have a story. She's going to tell me what happened. She limps into the room, and I'm like, wow, this is going to be a big deal. And she sits down. She's got her sister with us, and she's like, I can do the interview, but I can't do it on tape. And I was like, okay, uh, great. So why? And we tried to figure out why. Well, it turned out that she just was... She had been raised in Kuwait, and she had like a slight accent, and she was convinced that the way she spoke, that, that the authorities would figure out who she was and punish her relatives who were still in jail. It was a really bad deal. So we spent an hour just talking about it, and I was like, you know, look, I'm not going to force you to do something you don't want to do. But finally, her sister said, well, look, what if you did it in English? And she's like, no, no, they'll still recognize me. And then she was like, well, what if you, um, what if you whispered? So I'm just going to play a part of the story that came out of that. Authorities detained hundreds, then thousands. Oh, yeah, and the reason the tracks sound so bad because they're on my iPhone. Like, it's really, I was, like, under my bed in the hotel. Authorities detained hundreds, then thousands of men who were known to oppose the government. Then they went after the women. They took me from my work. And from the beginning, they slapped me on my face, on my head, shoulders. This woman was recently detained, beaten, then let go. When we met, she was limping from pain. She agreed to be recorded only if she could whisper in English so authorities won't recognize her voice. The woman says she was taken by bus to a police station, blindfolded, and made to stand for five hours in a room. She was accused of working to bring down the Bahraini regime. They tried to force me to confess that I told people at my work to be against the regime. Authorities showed the woman a picture of someone protesting at Pearl Roundabout. At the time, Bahrain's crown prince said it was legal to protest. Now, authorities say it's a crime. They tried to force me to confess that a picture and, and a protest is my picture, and it was really not my picture. They taunted the woman about one of her relatives, who's been jailed without charge for many weeks. They said very bad things about him, and they told me that, do you think he will come out of the jail? He will be die. 
But perhaps the worst part of the ordeal was that the woman was detained at all. In an Arab culture, particularly in the Gulf, detaining a woman is the ultimate humiliation. Going back to the days when the way one tribe defeated another was to capture and rape its women. They taught me if I didn't confess, they will let men come and continue with me. They told me that. And the, the threat was clear. They meant the men will do very bad things to you. Yes, I understood this. They were saying that we'll let these men come and rape you. No, they didn't say it. But to beat, but strong and hardly beat. Okay, so that the men would beat you even harder because they're men. Yes, yes. Did you ever feel like you were in danger of, of something worse, of some kind of sexual attack? Maybe, yes. So far, no Bahraini woman has reported being raped while in detention. Middle-aged men have reported being threatened with rape, and young men have reported being raped. There is much, much more to this woman's story, details that simply can't be divulged at this time. One of her relatives is still in jail, and she's terrified for her children. Analysts in the region say this is the first time in the wave of protests sweeping the Arab world that large groups of women have been targeted for going against the government. Bahraini human rights groups say hundreds of women have been detained in recent weeks. Most were released. Dozens are still being held. One female journalist reportedly was beaten so badly she can't walk. Authorities have vowed to investigate. In my whole life, the whispering woman told me, I have never been treated like this. No one has ever raised a finger to me, not a single unkind word. If they apologize for this, she says, maybe Bahrain can go forward again. But if they don't, we will live with this shame forever. And that shame might eventually turn into revenge. Kelly McEvers, NPR News. Okay, so that's just, yeah, one of those times where you think the whole thing is going to totally fall apart because you don't have any of the elements that you actually need to make a story. And I think, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's there's something kind of haunting um, about hearing someone whisper a story like that. And I just, uh, maybe something that you might remember for like longer than the five minutes that you usually remember a story that you hear in your car on the way to work. Um so yeah, so this was a problem that confronted me for like six, eight months, like people who wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> um, and I was trying to, and I, you know, so I'm like in these countries again, like undercover, and, and so I'm already sort of handicapped, and then I'm not going to put them in danger. In fact, um, for the first time in my entire career, I found myself telling people, don't talk to me. You know, there'd be times I'd be at a protest, and a guy would walk up to my microphone and want to start talking to me. I'd be like, no, don't do that, you know, because I know that actually that could put you in danger. Um, one of those times when that happened was in Syria, um, also a place that had its protest movement. Um, it started a little bit later than the Ara other Arab uprisings, but it started around March 2011 last year, and every town you can imagine across the country, you know, started slow, gained momentum. Pretty quickly, it was clear that the government wasn't going to put up with it, and more so than anywhere. I mean, you thought Bahrain's crackdown was brutal. It was nothing compared to the way the Syrian government responded to its own people. Um, shot people down the street, um, rounded them up in their homes, took them in, detained them. There are probably 50,000 people in detention right now. 
um, would torture people to death, then send their bodies back home again, sorry for the uplifting content, um, would send their bodies back home so that all the village could see what happens to you if you go protest. I mean, imagine being in like Zuccotti Park and like that's what happens, you know what I mean? Like this is really brutal stuff. So <clears throat> I, it's really hard to get into Syria. I mean, I couldn't do the JP Morgan trick in Syria. That just was not gonna happen. They're smarter about keeping journalists out than Bahrain was. So um, I managed to kind of weasel my way onto this tour called Syria is Fine. Um, uh, and Surya uh, Bikhair, that was the name. And, the, uh, and there's a through an Iraqi friend of mine. And uh, so it was like for all these, it was for all these journalists who basically support the Syrian government. So it was like Russian journalists and Iranian journalists and, and all these people who think that Syria is actually fine, you know. Um, and they wanted to show them just how fine it was. So, you know, it was one of these package tours, you know, they took us around to the markets and the shopping and the cafes and, and you know, from that view, you know, Syria was kind of fine. Um, but of course the protests were, I mean, this was August, so it was months into the protest movement. It was before this whole thing kind of turned into a war, but still it was really brutal. I mean, they were already shooting at people daily at protests. Of course, not on the Syria's fine tour. So what did I have to do? I had to like sneak around a little bit. So I actually was sick one night and I had a terrible stomach ache. So I took the, I, you know, I used to like, I'm sorry, I can't come to dinner with all the Syria's fine people. I'm not feeling well, which was true. But, you know, I also arranged a secret meeting um, with a protester um, and went out to a protest. And, and yet, here's another story where the guy I knew from even the beginning, he wasn't gonna be on tape. So I was like, I have to do this whole story with this character. The story is about a person who you're not gonna hear on tape. You're barely, barely gonna hear him on tape, and I explained it in the story. Um, but I mean, it's one of those stories that I think, so you know, here it is, it's like, you know, again, checklist, find, a, find an interesting character, which I did. I found this really, really fascinating character, but I, you couldn't hear his voice, and he spoke English. I mean, he was like, and really, really articulate, you know, it was just like, ah, this drives me crazy, and, and I still didn't have a kit, you know, still using my, micro, my iPhone to record all this stuff, so I was like, but you know, you still gotta, you know, it was like, well, I have to do the story, so um, I'll just play another story if that's okay, okay. Um, let me just make sure it starts at the right place. Let's start the, okay, yeah. Again, tracks sound really bad because they're on the iPhone, but um, so yeah, the story is about sort of him and I, and I should have called him like by a fake name or something, but instead I just called him the activist, just so you know. Let's start this story with how I was able to meet the activist. It was the quietest time of the day, just as everyone was breaking the fast. I walked away from my hotel and caught a taxi off the street. I stopped at a foreign embassy and stood on the sidewalk. The activist was out there somewhere to see if anyone had tailed me. A short and skinny young guy walked past and whispered, Please follow me. I waited until he got down the block, and then I started walking. I'd been instructed to do all this by one of the protest leaders. I followed the activist through streets and alleys. We finally reached his car in a lot behind a door. He told me I can't use his voice on the radio, unless it's when he's whispering or away from the mic. Activists have been arrested simply for talking to reporters on the phone. The only other voice you'll hear is mine. And how old was he? 15 years old. The activist was telling me about a young protester who'd been killed by security forces. Later, at his funeral, another man was shot. He's now dying in the hospital. We stop at the activist's house to grab something to eat before the final day's prayer. It's Ramadan, and the moments after the extra nightly prayer have become a time of protest. 
After tea, the activist changes into a white robe, and I put on a long black abaya and headscarf. His mother and sisters say they like the way it looks. <laughs> the activist says his family doesn't know why I'm there or what we're doing. Or maybe they do know, but don't want to admit this could be the last time they see their son. Back in the car, we see security forces on their way to the nightly prayer. So that's a green bus. Yep, it's a regular transportation bus. Yes. But it's full of men, all in plain clothes. Oh, wow, more. One, two busloads full of what they call shabiha. The shabiha are government-sponsored thugs who carry rifles, clubs, and tasers. They take their buses to mosques, then wait outside to keep people from gathering. We decide to make our own plan. So if something happens, we'll just separate. I won't see you again. I'll just find my way. I'll get a taxi and I'll go home. Yes. We pull over and wait for the prayer to finish. The activist gets out first and tells me to wait. Then he comes right back. Please hurry. They start it's happened. Okay. Yes. But should I have my bag in the car? Yes. Okay. I hide my phone in it? my sleeve. It's doing all the recording. Yeah, right. We see a group of maybe 30 protesters walking very fast down a dark and narrow alley. You can hear them chanting in the background. We run to catch up. Then we hear the cars. The activist says that's a warning sign. The security forces are coming. The protesters surge back toward us. Everybody's running down the street. Everybody's running like crazy. We're leaving. Oh, the activist calls me mama and grabs my arm. We're trying to look like we have nothing to do with the protest. The activist says they could arrest us at any minute. So we do our best to stay calm. We make it back to the car. Okay, that was fast. That sound was a sound grenade. Um, we saw the flash just to our left as we were running back through the alley. Now things are, you know acting normal. So when you go around Damascus and everybody says, oh, look, it's normal. It's like, well, it's sort of. Later, after I left Damascus, I talked to the activist on a secure line. I've asked him to check in with me, so I know he's all right. Every day, one of us is arrested and tortured, he says. One day, my time is coming. Until the world realizes what's happening in Syria, he says, they will try and get us all. Kelly McEvers, NPR News. Um, so, yeah, so this is all about a person you never, you heard him a little bit, right? He's like, yeah, let's go. Um, but just by just them, the fact that NPR, God bless their souls, let me do that kind of thing where I'm talking to him. So, you know, I'm talking to somebody. He's a presence, but he's never there. You never hear him. Um, sometimes, yeah, when you don't have somebody who's willing to go on tape, you have to figure it out. And sometimes it, I think it sounds okay. Um, uh it's funny, there's another thing I did in that, in that piece that I've done, I've ended up doing a lot, and it's, it, again, it's never something I thought about and never planned, um, and I think it's just, again, a, a product of just being in these situations where I just have so little to go on, and I don't know if you heard me counting the buses, I'm like, yeah, there they go, one, two, you like, every other story I do this now, I mean, I count stuff, instead of just saying, I saw four buses full of shabiha. I just, I'll count them on, I do it with like children, you know, the children, I do it with like, you know, guns all the time. Um, I've got another clip that I'll play for you. And I think what happened was when I, as I was covering these stories, um, I started to almost use my microphone as like a notebook. You know what I mean? Like, and I never really even thought that stuff was going to get on the radio. 
But then, you know, I'd go back and listen to it and I'd just be like, okay, right. I mean, that's, again, if, if no one else will say it into my mic, then I'll just, I'll just put me saying it. You know what I mean? At least um, it's better than just saying it. It's, you know, it's the old adage, show, don't tell. I'll just play another really quick example. I was back in Bahrain during the crackdown. And there's another time when I do that. And I remember... <laughs> Now, authorities regularly close off the village with checkpoints. This night, a convoy of land cruisers speeds into town. Yeah. Oh, here they come. Yeah, it's yeah, a, that, that's that's a convoy. Look, one, yeah, yeah. two, three, four, five. Yeah, that's right. And one's got like a spotlight on his car. So it's like all this like really literal stuff. Like it's in the, you heard in the protest one too, I'll say stuff like, we're running. And I do this all the time too in my stuff. We're running. We're stopping. They're coming. I mean, it's just like these totally and seemingly like really simple things. And again, I'm almost doing it for myself. So I like won't forget what happened later when I go back to listen to somebody like, where was I? What was going on? And then I started to realize that instead of just being notes, and I think this is the kind of thing that could totally translate to anything you guys are doing, is that it's just use it. You know what I mean? Because your reaction to it in the moment when it happened is so much more interesting than the many layers that separate you then later telling it, you know, when you're sitting down and writing it down. Does that make sense? Um, I do it, I even do it um, now, I even, I even like include, and I, I don't wanna sound like narcissistic, like it's so much better if you just hear me all the time. It's mostly because I just literally like no one will go on tape, so I just had no other choice. But then once I started trying this stuff, I was like some of it I keep doing, even when people go on tape. I do my own reactions to stuff, like I'll just be like, oh wow. You know, and that sounds so silly almost. But if it's like, you know, I'm confronted with a warehouse full of a thousand, you know, 20 year old guys with guns who've just defected from the Syrian army and I'm walking in the door for the first time and I'm like, whoa, that's a lot of guys with guns. I mean, it just sounds so almost ridiculous, but it just gives you, it gives you a moment in the story to just sort of stop and, and, and ponder it and then to hear someone else react to it. I'm not so interested what you think I think about the situation. I want you to be me. I want you to be standing in my shoes and you to be standing there and trying to understand what it's like to be talking to these protesters, to be confronted with these people who you know, are willing to leave an army and you know, fight for something they believe in. Does that, does that make sense? It's so I do this stuff, I'm a stand in for you um, I'm not so keen on you thinking like, wow, I'm really dying to know what Kelly thought about that you know, guy's outfit or whatever. It's more just like, I want you to stand, I wanted to hold on to your hand and just bring you there because it's such, I'm taking you so far anyway. Just stand there and try to feel like what it feels like sometimes. Um, so again, it was never a plan. It just started sort of happening because I had no choice almost. <laughs> um, and I'll do another one of those. <clears throat> and this is, again, you're totally going to hear the notebook thing happening. I mean, it's like, it's almost become like cliche at this point. But um, yeah, well, you'll hear it. This is another time. OK, so this is Bahrain. We're back to Bahrain. As you can tell, I'm totally obsessed with Bahrain. Nobody else is, so I'll just talk about it all the time. Um, so, you know, this horrible crackdown, it lasted for months, and, like, all these people jailed, you know, treated horribly. This woman, she's, uh, she is fine, I'm happy to report. Um, and in November of last year, the government decided, okay, we've, we've done some things wrong. 
it's time for us to make amends. We're going to try to put the past behind us and investigate some of the wrongdoing, and we're going to invite journalists in, and we're going to show the world how, what, you know, how we're acting in good faith, and we're really trying to, you know, right some of these wrongs. So they brought in an international panel of jurists to investigate all of the wrongdoing during the crackdown. And um, they had this big ceremony at the palace, and they actually invited me. I, for the first time, I had a, a real visa as a journalist. I didn't have to say I worked for J.P. Morgan to get into the country. Um, they greeted us at the airport. They're like, welcome to Bahrain, you know? And we were just like, <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, like, gave us a discounted hotel, which, of course, we didn't stay at, because we were like, we're not, you know, that's a little too close for comfort. But um, so everybody was prepared for this wonderful ceremony where they were really going to, and this is pretty rare in the Arab world, to just sort of admit that they'd done wrong and try to sort of, you know, be accountable for some of that. It was kind of an exciting moment in the Arab uprisings. So we get to the airport, and <laughs> I was like, I flew all night. I didn't sleep. I got there at like six in the morning, and they were totally pissing me off because they were being so nice, you know, and after, after treating me like crap for so long. And um, a friend of mine meets us at the airport, and he's a photographer, and he's like, we got to go right now. There's stuff going on in the villages. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, there's, you know, there's protests going on in the villages, and they're shooting at people. And I was just like, what? You know, today? Like, really? Like, they're really doing that? Like, right now? And he's like, yeah, we got to go. So we went. Um, and uh, there was, early that morning, there was a guy who um, had been known to go to a lot of protests he was outside his house, sort of gathered around with a couple of little people in the a couple of other people in the village, it's a really small village. <clears throat> and they'd been sort of talking, and police had been hounding him for days. And he gets in his car, and the, the police who'd been following him through the village rammed his car into a wall and killed him. And so all the people in the in the village, the women of the village, come to start mourning his death, as is their tradition. The women kind of come out and stand in front of the house and, and are wailing and crying. And then that kind of turns into a protest. And what do the police do? They crack down on the protest. So we were there, and this is what happened. Just a half hour's drive from the skyscrapers of the capital, people here live in houses made of plywood, corrugated steel, and concrete floors. People in the village say a man died early this morning when police rammed his car. The government says it was just an accident. Either way, the women of the village came to the house of the man who died, says this woman, who didn't want to give her name. All the women was inside, inside this room, and they closed the door from, they come walking the police, they closed the door, and they put the tear gas inside. You can smell and the tear gas. tear gas, lots of tear gas. Once people heard the women were getting gassed, about 20 or 30 protesters hit the streets, calling for the fall of the regime. That's when it got ugly. Okay, there's police in riot gear. We're all running. Okay. Oh, that's tear gas. Oh, my God. All right, we're in the house now. But it didn't stop there. The riot police surround the house, then come to the door. That's right here outside our door. Okay, now we're hiding. Oh my God. They're shooting in the house. The police fire tear gas canisters at such close range, they rip holes into the walls of the house. The standoff lasted an hour. The protesters and the dead man's relatives hold up in the house, cowering in dark rooms and passing out vinegar to soothe the sting of the gas. 
Eventually, the police fell back, giving the group a chance to leave. They wouldn't even let us cry for the dead, one woman said. All we wanted to do was come here and cry. Kelly McEvers, NPR News, Manama, Bahrain. Right, so that's you know notebook stuff. I'm just like I'm just recording what's going on as I'm literally like narrating the scene. I mean, luckily we had somebody talking to us this time, and this is amazing. This is a major development. Like I actually had a woman go on tape. I was like, wow. But then you know, so I by then I started. I'd been using these techniques all all along, and it just sort of seemed like it worked. I think. I mean, I hope so. You guys be the judge. Um, but just to sort of just say, okay, we're running, this is what's happening. I mean, you know, in that instant when you're really pressed for time, you obviously can find somebody else to narrate what's going on. Um, a lot of times when they don't speak English, I do it myself too because I feel like that's just more accessible for you, the listener. Um, sometimes they'll do it in Arabic and then I'll translate it, you know, in the moment. That sometimes works too uh, if we can do it that way. Um, and then, of course, the shooting and the moment. And, you know, it was really cool, as just as a postscript to this one, because it really made me happy. Um, you know, later that day, we went to the palace for this, you know, thing. I didn't even have time to wash the, wash the tear gas off my face. You know, I got to go to the palace and stand next to the king and be like, oh, yeah? You really? You know, do you know what happened to me today? And, like, stick my microphone in his face. That was fun. Um, and then later that week, I think we had on the radio, they, they played that tape on the radio, like, all week. You know, it was just, like, shaming the government, you know, over and over again. That's a fun feeling. Um, and, uh, we've, and eventually they got, on All Things Considered, I think they got, like, a big government spokesman talking about how they were making men's. And they're like, oh, yeah? You want to hear this? And then they played the tape. So it was really fun. That was a very satisfying trip, you know, to just be like, yes, you are still shooting at your protesters, and here it is, you know, on tape. Um, but again, that's just those reactions, those moments where you hear somebody saying, oh my God, like I don't, you know, I, um, that's just a thing that's more translatable to hear me say, dear gas, oh my God, that's gross. You know what I mean? Instead of hearing somebody say something in a different language. Again, I'm not so concerned that it's me. I just want you to hear it and feel it. I want to be the person who's as close to you as possible. Or do you want to, yeah. I just remember hearing that on the radio. Yeah. I couldn't, like, we were in the car and I just, and I like your technique of your recorder as a notebook. I think it's really compelling. I mean, you know, it sometimes can be kind of boring, but, um, and well, I'm gonna, you're going to hear me count again. Like, I don't know what this counting thing is. Like, I've got to get over, i got to get past the counting thing. Like, or I just like, you know, I start listing things. I'm like, yeah, well, you'll hear some other listing. I've got a listing problem too, but, um, uh, I, you know, again, it, it was born out of, you know, necessity, but I mean, it turned into something that I think, you know, can sometimes work. And that's just what I want. If, if I leave you with anything, it's that. It's like sh shit never works out the way you plan it. Um, but it, and, and sometimes it can be beautiful, even so, if it doesn't. Um, so, oh, yeah. So then um, I'm just going to do two, a couple more, and then I'd rather just, like, talk and stuff. Um, <clears throat> so then we kind of entered this whole phase of the Syrian conflict where, we couldn't actually go there. Um, obviously, the government wasn't issuing very many visas. They weren't doing any more Syria's fine tours. Those ended. <laughs> Syria's definitely not fine. Um, and then, again, for sort of the not-so-uplifting department, and in, in February, a couple of um, really well-known journalists died, American journalists. And so uh, even the sneaking-in option was sort of uh, ended. Um, Obviously, management at NPR and management at pretty much every other news organization in the world was just like, you know, nobody can sneak into Syria anymore because it's really dangerous. So we found ourselves covering a war by remote control. 
um, a thing that was becoming a war. I mean, it was an it was an uprising, and then it was a war, and we had to cover it from far away. And knowing what I knew, and having been there and talked to the people that I'd talked to, even though they wouldn't be on tape, um, it was that was really, really, really hard thing to do. And it was just we were constantly confronted with how do we cover the story? How do you cover it? Not only will people not talk to us, but I mean, they were not even there in the country to, to, to give you that scene where they're not talking to us, but at least you feel like you're in it somewhere. So what the hell are you going to do? Well, how was I getting my news every day? I was getting my news every day on Skype, you know, people calling in on Skype and telling us stuff, but you guys know how Skype tape sounds. Doesn't sound very good. You know, it's phone tape. It's not that great. Um, we were getting uh, YouTube videos um, the Syrian protesters were amazing in the, in documenting their own lives. They've gotten better and better at it every day. So I spent, you know, day in and day out sitting in my office in Beirut, like in my pajamas, like watching these videos and like reading all this news on Skype and talking to people on the phone. But, you know, none of that's, that's not good radio, right? It's like, what am I going to do? You know, I was just constantly confronted with like, how are we going to do it? So, I mean, I came up with a couple of different ways to deal with it. And one of them was just to do a story about that, you know? This war is being covered by the people, the actors themselves. Let's do a story about that. So we did. I'll play a little bit of that. Do you want? Uh, should I do that? Yeah, that's not that good a story, but um, I'll even let you get. This is like you get to hear the hosts and everything. It's, it's morning. To the total NPR experience. It's morning edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Renee Montaigne. Correspondents gathering news of Syria's uprising face two hard questions every day. The first is, what's happening? The second is, how to find out. Reporters are occasionally granted access to Syria. A few, like our colleague Kelly McEvers, have even slipped in without permission. But they're mostly kept out, which means they and we rely on the kinds of people we will hear about next. Activists and citizen journalists are risking their lives to document the Syrian bombardment of the city of Homs. Kelly McEvers explains how they do it. The offensive on Homs started when government troops began firing tanks, rockets and mortars at neighborhoods that have been the most fierce in resisting the government throughout Syria's uprising. Mainstream journalists are barred from entering homes, so a team of activists decided to record the offensive themselves. They positioned their cameras on top of buildings and homes. I don't really explain this to perfectly in the story, but did you hear that rooster? Okay, so these guys would like, they had a camera posted on the top of a building in this neighborhood called Baba Amr that was just being bombarded. It was 30 days, like Stalingrad. I mean, it was just like... They flattened it, you know, 30 days, constant, constant shelling. But in the morning, there would be a lull, and they would fire up the camera, and they would live stream Baba Amr. So I'd wake up, I'd be in my pajamas, I'd drink my coffee, and I would, like, turn on the war in my office. No shit. And it would be like, and but, you know, before the war started, it was the, it was the rooster. You'd hear the birds. So weird. Um, and the rooster ended up getting his own Facebook page later. But um, that's, that's the Syrians. They're amazing. Um, so anyway, there's the rooster. Let's just give homage to the rooster. They positioned their cameras on top of buildings and homes. Each morning, the view is blue sky, a minaret, a sea of rooftops. Then come the booms. The offensive is mainly centered on the neighborhood of Baba Amr. It's seen some of the most persistent protests against the government and an increasing resistance by civilians who've taken up arms and soldiers who've defected from the army. 
Day in and day out, the video stream is up and running, recording the government offensive in real time. Then, last Thursday, a rocket hit the house where the activists were stationed. The screen goes gray with smoke. The camera keeps rolling. The picture of the rooftops eventually comes back into view. Then you hear the activists calling out to God as they discover the bodies of four women in the basement who were killed by the blast. Twitter and Skype are a flurry of messages. Did I just watch someone die, one activist writes? The rockets keep falling. Volunteers help the injured, and the camera team hits the streets. One of them is TV ready. His name is Danny Abduldayim. He records this indignant stand-up in front of five bloodied children who were also injured by a rocket that day. They've been hitting us from 6 a.m. until it's 2 p.m. now. We have over 100 bodies. Look at the children. How can you stand and watch these children be like this? Danny has become a regular face in the coverage of the bombardment of homes. With a Syrian father and a British mother, he's the perfect mix of local and international. His videos have been all over the BBC, CNN, and Al Jazeera. This video was shot in a field hospital as Danny walks through gruesome heaps of dead and injured people. We're not animals. We're human beings. We're asking for help. We're asking for your help. They're hitting us with rockets. If we don't stop with the rockets for four hours now, they're going to kill us all. If we don't help us, they'll kill millions. Danny recently... Sorry for such sad stuff. Um, the... Uh, so, I mean, I was sitting in my office watching TV. I mean, that's what that radio story is, right? I'm sitting in my office watching TV. Not, not TV, but I'm watching videos on my laptop, like this laptop right here. And I'm just writing about it, you know, because that's all we could do, you know? But, I mean, here are these people. They were telling the story, so I just told you how they told the story. And that's all we could do at that point. I just I couldn't go in. I couldn't get there. Um, and these guys, um, you know, as journalists, we have to be... Uh, you know, we have to try to verify stuff. We have to be skeptical of them. We can't just take everything they give us, you know, and swallow it and think that it's true because we, we know these guys very well and sometimes they embellish, you know. Um, but just, it was just seemed to me that that was just, you know, I, uh, after days and days and days of sitting in my office being like, how am I going to tell the story? I was like, oh, right, yeah, I'll just tell the story that I'm, the people are telling. You know what I mean? It was just sort of right in front of my face. Um, and then I'll do one more of those. And uh, this again, I zero. So that you notice, like, I mean, the tape uh, of Danny uh, was just him from YouTube. I actually ended up meeting the guy. He escaped to Beirut later, and he was in the story. But um, at least the point is that most of that story was just based on YouTube. This one, I do a lot of these now, too. Again, because I'm just so, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to tell the story. People are dying every single day. But like when you're driving in your car and you hear like 5,000 people are done in Syria or 200 people died, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's like, who are these people? How do they die? What happened? And I can't get into Syria to tell you for those months, many months. I couldn't get in there to tell you. So I, I just didn't know what to do. So I started using YouTube as a soundtrack. And I just sit down and I just write a story. This story right here, it's got nothing but me and YouTube. All right. Um, it's about one of the guys, you know, one of those guys on one of those days when you heard Robert Siegel or somebody say a hundred people died in Syria. Here's one of them. They called him the spray man, but really he was just an activist like any other activist. He started protesting in Syria last spring. 
Back then, everybody thought it would only take a few months to get rid of the president, just like in Tunisia and Egypt. Then Syrian forces started killing protesters, detaining them, torturing them, and the people started fighting back. And now, well, the whole thing has gotten pretty complicated. But still, there was Noor and his friends, organizing protests, hiding activists from the dreaded security forces, ferrying medical supplies to those who were injured but terrified to go to a government hospital. Then late last year, Noor got caught. Under torture, one of his friends had given up his name. Noor later forgave the guy. He was locked up for 56 days. As soon as he got out, he was at it again. He and his friends went around spraying the suburbs of Syria's capital, Damascus, with slogans against the Syrian president. Down with the traitor. To the trash heap of history. Pictures of the president with the word pig scrawled underneath. A few weeks ago, Noor and his friends declared Freedom Graffiti Week. The Facebook page calls their work a mix of civil disobedience and peaceful expression. It all sounds so harmless, but in Syria, it can get you killed. This past Sunday, Noor was going from neighborhood to neighborhood with his spray paint, jumping from car to car. He sped through a checkpoint for fear of being discovered. He was shot in the leg by security forces. All we know is that he bled to death. He was later filmed on a dark stairwell, his body stiff, his eyes still open. They called him a martyr. The body was washed and shrouded in white and covered with flowers. They came by the hundreds to the funeral. They carried palm fronds and danced around the ones who held his body aloft. Most of them were just dudes, young ones in skinny jeans and baseball hats. They sang prayers for Noor and his family. Mother of the martyr, they said, we are your children now. Just beyond the crowd, you see a handful of thugs with really big guns. They're not wearing uniforms, but they work for the government. They look just like the dudes at the funeral. Their message is clear. Don't take this any further. Don't take this out of the neighborhood. Then, like so many of these videos that we get out of Syria, the footage of Noor's funeral just stops. The next day, there's another one. Another funeral. Another boy covered in flowers. Another video. We sit in the office and watch. And then we go on to the next thing. Kelly McEvers, NPR News, Beirut. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. God, this is really depressing. Um, yeah, so yeah, I watched TV and I wrote about it. I mean, that's just all we could do that day. You know, just some days where you're just like, you know what? You know, so you got to figure out a way to tell the story in a way that's not just the regular news. Um, do one more thing. It's, it's, an, it's another situation where... Um, we had a couple of items on the checklist, but a couple of key ones were not there. This was better. People actually talked to us. Um, so Yemen. It's the one where the revolution sort of worked out. Um, the bad guy, the bad dictator, stepped down after they almost killed him. Um, and a new guy came into place. So it was like this kind of interesting moment where they were, again, they were inviting journalists to be like, come see the new guy. And we were like, sweet, you know, because I'd been there undercover too and I wasn't supposed to be there and I was sneaking around and stuff. So I thought, oh, that'll be fun. I'll go check that out. And um, it was right around that time. Okay, so it's kind of complicated. But the, the old guy 
was in cahoots with these Al-Qaeda guys, and he had let them all kind of keep this one piece of territory all to themselves. So when the, the old guy left, the dictator left, and the new guy came in, the new guy was like, well, we got to get rid of these Al-Qaeda guys. They suck. So because um, uh, these Al-Qaeda guys had held this piece of territory for like a year. Um, so right about the time I got, I, I literally, I landed on a Monday to do a report about how they were trying to get rid of these Al-Qaeda guys. And on Tuesday morning, they were like, we got rid of them. They're gone. Al-Qaeda is no longer in this Al-Qaeda linked affiliates, whatever. It's kind of complicated. Or not, or whatever. It, these bad guys are no longer in this piece of land. And I was like, well, that's cool. Let's go. Let's go check that out. Because for like a year, we couldn't go there. And just by luck, I happened to get there the day that we could. So I was like, that's cool. Why is this important at all? Because of drones. The United States of America, if you don't know, is involved in a third war. It's after Iraq and Afghanistan, there's another war falling from the sky. And that is the drone war that we are engaged in on over Yemen, Pakistan, sometimes Somalia. And where do these drones fall? But in Al-Qaeda territory. And why can we never report on this stuff? Because it's too dangerous. So what did we get to do for the first time, like, ever, was go to these places and, like, find out what happened. And, like, is it true when they say, oh, the drones only kill terrorists? You know, which, of course, we know that's not true, right? But we can never, seriously, in Pakistan, you cannot go to these places. In Somalia, you cannot go to these places. In Yemen, you cannot go. So all of a sudden, I was like, holy crap. You know, I just like woke up in my hotel, like, we can go. You know, this is a very big deal. Happened super fast. So checklist, access, boom, got it. You know what I mean? Sweet. This is going to be a really good story because <laughs> we can go there. Um, and maybe people even talk to us, although that's kind of hard to do, right? Because they're, you know, if... Um, you know, drones were falling from the sky and killing all of my cousins, I'd probably be really mad at the country that was doing that and possibly a reporter who came from that country. But that's beside the point. Um, so, but I didn't want to get government permission, so we just, you know, I knew that that would take months, uh, weeks at least to do. So we just dressed like a Yemeni family. I literally, like, literally covered myself from head to toe, which is so great about being a woman because you can just be in disguise sometimes with my colleague, this Yemeni guy who really enjoyed pretending to be the patriarch um, as we whizzed through checkpoints. Be like, shut up, bitch. Um, and uh, I was like, just smiling, you suck. Um, and so uh, anyway, so we got access to this place. So access, boom, like biggest thing you could possibly imagine. Major exclusive story, huge deal. We get there and we're like, wow. I mean, visually, I cannot explain to you what it's like to see what's left after a drone is hit. I mean, it's just this like nothingness. It's unbelievable, right? Here's this entire strip of land, like literally like this whole strip of land, like for ours for the taking. We could just go up and down. But I'm making a radio story. I'm like, what the hell am I gonna do? How do you do nothingness on the radio? It was like a several towns along the coast, the southwest, sorry, southeast coast of Yemen, starting at the port city of Aden and just sort of going along. The first town is called Zinjibar. Um, the second town is called Jar. The next town is called Shakra. And it's so these major towns. So we're talking like a stretch of 150 miles, probably. So it's a thin stretch along the coast. And you know, when the, when the army said like, we won, the militants are gone. I mean, they basically just like ran away and hid in the hills. But for us, it was just great that we could go at all. Um, but yeah, how do you do that? How do you do that on the radio, right? Oh man. And so one of the great things about Yemenis and unlike all my other experiences covering the Arab uprisings was that people were willing to talk because I was in disguise and there was a little bit of a layer of like, 
who are you? Why are you asking me questions in English, but dressed like a Yemeni? You know, so it wasn't totally clear who I was, even though we represented ourselves as journalists when we actually interviewed people, of course. Um, there's still this sort of thing, how do you, how do you, like, how do you tell the story in the radio? Like, what, how am I gonna do this? You know, what am I gonna do to try to impart just how unbelievable it is? And the witnesses came out of the woodwork, which was wonderful, but there was still just this sense, like, what are you gonna do? So you're gonna hear what, how we did it. And then that, I'll end on that, and I would just love to just talk and hear what you guys think and stuff, is that, is that, if that's cool. This is how we decided to do it. I won't bore, uh, yeah. So there's no intro. Is this right? Yeah, here we go. This is all things considered. No, you're not supposed to do that, sorry. You guys didn't hear that part. Ah, here we go, okay. No offense to our dear colleagues, but the intro is kind of boring. The first thing you see when you visit the site of a drone or airstrike is how complete the destruction is. We are about to walk into what looks like about a block of rubble. This clearly used to be a house. I'm walking amid, you know, hundreds and hundreds of concrete blocks. Whatever was here has completely disappeared. But then you look closer. You start to see bits and pieces of color. Pink silk curtain, shards of plywood, can of baby milk. The next thing you see are the witnesses. Uh, he, he's a survivor. They walk toward you to tell you what happened. This man says it was a morning in mid-May here in the town of Jar. A plane flew in low and bombed the house that used to be here, killing a man inside. Dozens of people rushed to see what had happened. And we didn't think it would come back. Suddenly we see it come back the airplane and shoot again into us. They were cut in like cuts, like this, like pieces. Cut in pieces, the man says. The second strike killed more than a dozen civilians and injured at least a dozen more. Many of the injured would later die. Where did the second one land? When Exactly at this area, when most of the people were killed. So along this wall, it's brown with bloodstains. There's an old shoe couple of old shoes covered with sludge. The witnesses say the plane that did this was American. How do they know? I mean, how do they know it wasn't the Yemeni Air Force? It was gray, they say. It looked like an eagle. We don't have planes like that. This is the problem with the escalating air war in Yemen. No one here knows exactly who is responsible for any given strike. It could be an airstrike by the Yemeni Air Force or the U.S. military, or it could be an unmanned drone operated by the U.S. military or the CIA. All of these are being used in the fight against al-Qaeda and other militant groups here in Yemen. But no matter who launches any particular strike, nearly all are blamed on Americans. What's more, we found that many more civilians are being killed than officials claim. Contact paper, the kind you put on your shelves. Old piece of a silk flower. In this mid-May strike, in Jar, for example... Yemeni officials said two militants and eight civilians were killed. We found zero militants killed and between 17 and 26 dead civilians. Pair of old shorts, burnt piece of fabric. And that's just one strike out of dozens this year. It has to be said that the strikes do hit their targets. 
like this strike at a hospital in Jar that was caught on video. Residents say al-Qaeda-linked militants were using the hospital as a base. There's an old shirt, piece of carpet, a chunk of bathroom tile. And like the strike at this house in Jar that hit one night last month. I went home, closed the door, uh, I got back inside, closed the door, and then first rocket hit. Adnan Ahmed Saleh calls them rockets, but all he really knows is there were explosions. The house next door to his was flattened, and five al-Qaeda-linked militants, who he says were renting the house, were killed. He says the next day, more militants came and took the bodies and most of the rubble away. Then they paid the owner of the house several thousand dollars in compensation. Saleh says he's mostly glad the militants are gone. He just wishes he could get something for the damages to his house, too. Yemeni lawyer Haikal Bafana says al-Qaeda does much to win the hearts and minds of poor Yemenis, much more than the air campaign. The people who the Americans... Uh, are terming as collateral damage. They are the poorest of the poor in Yemen. There's, as far as I know, uh, no attempts by the Americans to go in and do a proper battlefield uh, damage assessment. Bafana says at the very least, Yemeni and or American officials could investigate civilian deaths, acknowledge mistakes were made, and perhaps offer compensation. Instead, he says, the worst-case scenario is coming true. The air campaign to kill militants sometimes only creates more militants. Inside the dingy sitting room of a mud-brick house in the poor desert province of Madhab, we're greeted by a wall of children whose father was killed in a strike in October. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 13 children. One of the boys was there when the strike hit. He says he and his father and brother were grazing camels in an area known to be controlled by al-Qaeda. Night fell, then came the strikes. He said he did not move until the morning, and then when he woke up, he was kind of scared. He went to see his father and his brother. He saw them scattered into pieces. The boy says his father fought in Afghanistan in the 1980s with men who would later join al-Qaeda. The family says the father recently renounced his ties with the group. Either way, his sons now have one thing in mind. He said his feeling is only to take revenge for his father. How's he going to do that? He said by killing whoever killed our father. And who's that? America. Up on the wall is a black banner of a group linked with al-Qaeda. The group pays the family a monthly salary. And the family says the eldest son has already joined al-Qaeda. Another son is sitting to my right. He stares at me, hard. His name is Osama. Osama keeps a little folded up, crumpled piece of paper in his pocket. And if you open it up, it's a picture of an American plane. Perfume, an old flip-flop buried in the sand. And a big, wide sky above. Kelly McEvers, NPR News. So, like, totally straight news story. I mean, kind of like an investigative story that you would see in a newspaper. But, I mean, so it's kind of boring sometimes. But, like, we just tried to do this thing in there where we use lists to just sort of kind of repeat this motif over and over to get uh, some sort of visual sense of what 
was left behind and that these are human beings. So that's it. That's all I'm going to say. And you are now going to talk. Yes. Hello. Hi. Um, I would like to ask you about uh, trying to verify, like how you or, or when you try to verify some of the things that you're hearing. It's obviously, so there was a detail in the story about um, the man who was killed, whose funeral you saw the video of, where I think it said something like, he was in jail for 56 days. And I'm thinking, yes. okay, you're probably not seeing prison records. You're not going to be able to, they're not probably not keeping records because they're jailing people under suspicious circumstances. There's no due process. Um, you know, in this story, when you say uh, there's drone strikes, perhaps by the US military or the CIA, obviously they're not being forthcoming. They have a Wall very high level of deniability. Right. Yes. I, you know, I know that there's complications with that particular story. But um, obviously, you know this. So, like, under what circumstances do you even try to go to people All. and verify them? Okay. All. Yeah. Still got to be a journalist. And even though Siri is like one of the hardest stories I've ever worked on my entire life and ever will because we can't be there, um, relatives, witnesses, anybody you can get, you're not going to see any documents. You're not going to get officials. You know, it's not like you can go to the Chicago Police Department and be like, hi, can we see the jail records for, you know, March 17th? Um, it's not going to work that way. So you ask the relatives, is it true he's in for 56 days? Yeah, I counted. It was 56 days. You know, I mean, mom will tell you that that's how many days her son was in prison. That's an easy one. Some of the ones are hard. I mean, this, 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 this drone stuff is insanely difficult. Because you're relying on, I mean, again, for an entire year, all we had was Yemeni media sources. And, you know, again, and then, and then, and then U.S. military, the Yemeni military saying, yeah, it was like eight, you know, every day you see news out of Yemen. Eight militants killed, five militants killed, militant leader killed. They've, they've, they've killed the same al-Qaeda leader like four times in Yemen in the last like three months. It's freaking ridiculous. So we went to that, that particular one where we, I said, I said what, like between 17 and 27 civilians. I, I went to the clinic and we saw a roster of names. You know, a lot of times with uh, the activists in Syria, that's what it is. It's like names. You know, give me names. And they'll give you the names and the ages and the addresses of all the people who died in a particular attack by the government. And we corroborate as much as we can. It's all corroboration with as many sources as you can get, but it's not perfect. It's not perfect at all. Yep. Uh, I have two questions. Yep. Uh, the first is how, like, what is the process of finding these people who do not want to talk? Like, that seemed like a, a very big hurdle to overcome. Yeah, right. yeah. Well, it's like everybody. Yeah, you know, yeah. especially in the early days. Um, it changed. Yeah. Um, so, like, what are some of the strategies? What are some of the resources you use? How, how do you like? Actually how do you actually find the people, yeah. even the ones who won't talk? And then the um, the second question is a little more technical question. On some of the stories you mentioned, we talked on a secure line. Make it sound like you work for the CIA. How does that Yeah, work? maybe that was a lame way to say it. Skype. That's all. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like, Skype, I mean, their IP addresses. Like, Skype is the most secure thing you've got right now. But yeah, they've hacked into people's Skype accounts and they'll, they'll get information. But still, and the Syrians are smarter than anyone on this that I know because they're the ones who, like, die if they don't talk on a secure line. They still use Skype. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, they do. So, yeah, back to the. I mean, I've, Skype is, like, I live, like, people will be like, how do you like Beirut? I'm like, I don't know. I don't live in Beirut. I live in Skype. Like, literally, I live, sit in front of my computer and watch YouTube and Skype all day or talk on Skype. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's as secure as you're going to get. A lot of them use, um, we, we use VPN. You know, they'll use a VPN as well inside Syria, almost all of them. And then they'll obviously link up um, with a BGAN or a SAT connection. Um, I didn't know if NPR had some kind of secret. No, God. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. I'm calling him a secret line. Does Skylar McEvers from a beer? No. That'd be awesome. <laughs> That'd be so awesome if I had my own secret line. No. And it's finding the people, I mean, 
the way we do our job in general, like um, a lot of times as a foreign correspondent, you go into a new town, you've never been there before, what do you do? You need help, right? You you lean on people who live there and people who know. And there's a, there's a, there's a profession built around this, and they're called fixers. I actually profiled one of these people for that series I did that included the pirate. Um, it's their job. It's their job to fix things for me. Um, so I come in and I find the best fixer and I pay him money and he gives me phone numbers and he takes me around and tells me where to go and what to do. It's fraught with all kinds of problems and it's not the best thing to do. I mean, it's a whole conversation we could have. I mean, it's a very complicated world. But um, in general, that's how we do stuff. I mean, better to just have your own contacts and do it yourself. I've been in the region for, you know, six years. So it's... Friend of a 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 friend, kind you're, of thing. You're your own In some ways, you get to that point, yeah, obviously, yeah. Can you talk about what the, the, the pitch is, though? Do you talk about what the pitch is going to be to the person? Like, the, the, the person you're going to interview? Yeah. Sure, of course. Yeah, yeah, hi. I want to talk to you about what it was like to be in detention. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I want you to take me to a protest. That's why I'm here. Always up front. I mean, I, I know I talked about being in disguise, but when I'm in the moment, like, I'm totally 100% clear about who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm there and who I work for and stuff. But Definitely. Like, uh, in terms of, like, appealing to their interest in or, like, Sure. Yeah. I mean, th this, that's the thing with these guys, right? I mean, this, that, there's, there's, like, you know, again, there's a whole bunch of stuff on the checklist that you don't have, and there's a couple things that you do, and they're, they're always interested in telling you their story, right? You know, I mean, things have gotten a little more complicated now with this whole war business. But um, uh, for the most part, it's like we're protesting. We want to bring down the government. We want the world to know about it. Simple, you know. Uh, people who've been drowned, different. You know, maybe they don't want it. I mean, there was, you know, there was a lot of people um, who didn't want to talk to an American. Um, I got to do back of the room because yeah. I always not I don't do that. Um, thanks so much for taking the time, by the way, to be here um, with us and share your stories. Um, I feel like you must be like in amazing shape because you're like doing all this running oh. and jumping and like. But, but so so grossly out of shape. It's but, the all the Arab Springs fault. No God, no. But it's the worst. um, but I'm Nescafe and like fucking mini bar. You know, I mean, this is the worst. Oh. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the <laughs> so the, the physicality of your job because it is a little bit more and also the mental nimbleness that you need because. Um, it seems like you're just you're making decisions so quickly, and and you're really I mean you're part of the story in a way. Like we're worried for you in this story as well. So maybe just you know talk a little bit about those. It's you know ideal to stay in shape. I work sometimes with security advisors, you know, like these big super beefy guys, like like ex British military. Usually when I go like really deep in rebel territory in Syria, now I like embed with the rebels. That's sort of my new thing. But um. And so we go with these like dudes and they're like, you should really try MMA. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like, are you like, when would I, when would I do that? You know, like really, I mean, it's a great idea and all, but like how exactly would I do that? So, I mean, yeah, I'm supposed to be in good shape, but I'm not, I'm not I don't know what to tell you. I'm in terrible mental and physical shape. <laughs> I just, I mean, I have night and that's it. I'm sorry. It's the truth. I'm, yeah, it's exhausted and fat and yeah. <laughs> so anyone else is kidding. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so you look like you're holding it together. Oh, good. Yeah. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. Got up at three. Excellent. Still barely here. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk about the challenge of language um, and how you jump around that? Or sort of I know some Arabic, so it's uh, that's it's that's a, yes. Yep. But like when you're when you're the the tape that you get. Mm -hmm. um, I know enough that I can I can do. So you, you know what I've just. 
I won't. I can't like a translate an interview, um, and I will never do that. And I always am working with a colleague, an Arabic speaking colleague. I never do. I don't work alone. I just. I mean. For a million reasons, we don't work alone. You know, sometimes I have a whole posse. I never work with a producer, which a lot of correspondents in my kind of world do work with field producers. I just don't because I'm kind of a control freak. Um, but uh, uh, I should because I'm tired. Um, so, but I'm always with at least a translator, or fixer, or driver, or security guy. You know, sometimes it's like five, six people can be. But you know, um, almost always, most of them speak fluent Arabic, which I do not. But I speak enough that I can do stuff. I can cut my own tape and talk to people and stuff. Kind of just in the in the thing, yeah. In the I've been doing it for about like I said about six years. So I just it's. I mean, you spend most of your day like this, you know, with a microphone listening to somebody speak Arabic, and then somebody translating it, right? You learn Arabic. I mean, like it's amazing. Like I understand. It's the first language I've ever learned because I have a couple other languages, but it's the first time I've ever learned it where I understand more than I speak because of that. Because I'm just listening, 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 listening. Translate, 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 translate. Listen, translate, listen, translate. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, I know what that word means now. You know what I mean? I was not sent. No, I I went there on my own. To the Middle East. Yeah. Back in the back. Yeah, you. Yeah, great. Uh, so, uh, quick one quick thing. So, I assume most of the YouTube you you look at is in Arabic, the titles and stuff. Yep. Okay. Um, and um, the second question is, a lot of your pieces seem to be uh, very like very narrowly focused, very vignette Like this is what I saw. This is what I can confirm. Yep. Do you put any stock in, say, like I just remember there was like a New York Times magazine piece like a year and a half ago called Yemen's Descent into Hell, and it was Bobby, yeah. And and uh, you know I was, I was speaking with a Yemeni friend who was like, you know, a lot, you know, like a lot of that was very mis, who said a lot of that was very misleading, wasn't exactly really really accurate, but blah blah. Yeah. And um, and so, do you put any stock into comprehensive coverage? Totally. You, you yep. Like when I, did the Bahrain, like we did a big series on the Arab uprising for, for one. And of course I was like, meet, meet Bahrain, Bahrain. I'm going to do Bahrain. So I did like, you know, a big, long, you know, sort of comprehensive, you know, piece about Bahrain. Definitely. Absolutely. In fact, I had so much stuff in Bahrain. I'm so obsessed with Bahrain and nobody cares about Bahrain except I think me. Um, it, I ended up like writing a big magazine story about it. I mean, I think there's times when we just have to kind of step back and do the big stuff for sure. Definitely. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I can do it on the radio. Like, well, you know, we'll do these big series or whatever. I mean, I went, the last, no, not the last time. Uh, the summer I was inside Syria with the Rebels, I did like a five-part series about it. And they like aired it on like morning and all things considered. You know what I mean? So like they made a big sort of deal about it. I mean, it was, the, the, the sum of the parts was sort of a comprehensive, you know, thing. I think that's important sometimes, especially when you were, I mean, I got to feed the news beast. I can't like write these nice little stories all the time, you know, like I get fired. Um, I remember your the drone strike piece when I was driving. Um, it, it's just incredible. I you did body for it. <laughs> but I was curious, um, who mixed it? Did you mix it? No, uh, but I had a very strong hand in the mixing process as one of the producers at NPR. It was great. Yep. Yeah, amazing. Just from a technical point of view, um, really how nice quickly were you turning that around and how detailed was your, your editor? One of these times, but yeah, the, 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 the just like super, super, super meticulous, you know, because we can't, I wish they'd let us just mix our own stuff, but we can't. Um, whole different story, but um, yeah, um, but it's a little different now. Let's change because they don't have the engineers doing it anymore and stuff. So, but uh, that was when I just said to my editor, I'm like, look, 
this one's going to take some time. Do not air it today. Give me one day to like listen back. And so the producer and I were able to go back and forth like several times. Notes, you know, the whole thing like real, like you guys like make radio. You know what I mean? Like the real way to make radio it was awesome. So it was like we really kind of tried to hone it down. I mean, if, yeah, to something. Sure. Question about when you're recording on the iPhone. Those of us who try to do any wood on our phone find the battery goes in about an hour. If you're sitting there recording three hours and that's all you have, I don't know why. I don't really, yeah, I don't know why. I have a real hoss of an iPhone. I have a little 3GS. I don't use it anymore. And then I have the, the, the big thing with the battery pack, you know, that like gives it like, like two day. It's got like a two day thing now with my, but I miss my old friend. It was a good one. It got me through a lot. Yep. Can you just Talk about the sustainability of my life. Yeah. Nope. Not sustainable. Not happening. I mean, I'll you know I'll quit soon, ish. You know, I mean you can't. The just it's yeah. Not a long time. I went to this for a long time. I thought Syria was going to be another uprising. It's turning into a war. I mean, it's brought up a whole different conversation that I'm having with myself, and I'm actually making an hour-long documentary about that about why otherwise educated people would put themselves into harm's way in order to tell a story. I don't know the answer, but I'm trying to at least ask the question in radio documentary form. So stay tuned for that. Um, you talk Sure, please. Sorry. You talk both about recording with an iPhone and also recording with a microphone. And I'm wondering when you're, when you're in public, under what circumstances will you be? What do you mean in public? If you're recording someone in public spaces yeah. as opposed to in their home. Totally depends. I mean, for their safety, if they don't want people to know, then I won't, you know, then I'll do it like have my iPhone on my sleeve or whatever. You know, it's whatever they want. Okay. You know, they dictate the terms. Do you ever feel And like almost always in these situations with these activists and these uprisings and these situations where these governments are trying to kill them, it's like, you know, they've requested to not. I mean, the thing about the Arab world is there's not a lot of public stuff. Any, I mean, you don't do a lot of this stuff in public anyway. You're always going to be inside a house in a sitting room, a bombed out cave of some sort. You know, you're not going to be just like standing in the middle of the street unless there's something going on anyway. And if you're trying to do natural sound and ambient sound, will you? Yeah, I'll stand there. Sure. I did in Yemen. I mean, we, when we did the Yemen piece, I actually, I had a mic. That was a mic for, it was crazy to actually use a microphone. We are over time already, so maybe one more. Okay. Yeah. Who, who, who wants to do it? No, and anybody can come <laughs> hang out afterwards. I'm not doing anything. I'm, I'm just wondering, do you encrypt your stuff? Because presumably, um, have you ever been caught and they've kind of gone through your laptop or anything like that? Oh, it's a different story. But yeah, um, I don't encrypt. I should. Um, I usually just go with clean stuff. I, I rarely travel. If I'm going in, like nowadays, these last couple months going into rebel territory, I don't bring my laptop at all. I'll bring a clean, because I do love the iPhone so much in weird situations, I just bring a clean phone. I'll just clean it off. No contacts, no SIM cards. You know, I mean, there's a whole like security scene we go through to do this kind of stuff, but um, yeah. So it's not really encryption, it's just, I just don't bring anything. Like last time I was in, I didn't have a laptop, but I had all this downtime and I was like, I got a log tape. Like I just had all this tape and I knew I needed to log, and I logged it longhand. I sat and wrote out my tape. <laughs> I have like a stack of pages of longhand tape logs. It was awesome. You can't do any search terms. It's really hard. Yeah, one more. Yeah, go. Yeah, sure. I just want, if you are going to quit, I would love to hear <laughs> a little bit of your thoughts about how you will bring this experience back to the mundane reporting. I am so many of us do every dying day. dying to know the answer to that. <laughs> That's probably what will keep me from quitting until I figure out what the answer is. 
But I mean, not necessarily what you do next, but how do you bring this, what you've learned, recording in this way? Again, I mean, hopefully what I'm, ta what I'm talking about to now, like, right, everybody speaks your language. It's weird. It's like, what? Even when I come, like, I go to the coffee shop, I'm like, stop speaking English. It's weird. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it'll be great. But I mean, I think one thing you'll, I'll learn, I hope, I mean, in some small way, I'm parted to you guys, was just that... Um, you know, don't get too hung up on the fact that, you know, everything isn't falling into place, that like problem solving is half of the game, if not more. And um, sometimes again, like the, you know, the, the most, the, the horror, the most horrible situation can actually turn out pretty well. I mean, I hope that that's how it's gonna work out. Cool. All right, thanks guys.